I'm rolling again. Okay, let me pull this up. Hold on. Levels, levels. Levels, when check, check, check. <laughs> Back here. A little, <laughs> yeah. When we go that big, it's, it peaks a little bit. Okay. I never go that big. I did once when I laughed about feeling birds for no reason. Critics, critics sometimes think I go that big. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to The Well. I'm Anson Mount. And I am Brandon Edgens. And Brandon, you know, of all the things that have come up during this coronavirus lockdown, other than the virus, the biggest story is probably the economy. Mm-hmm. In fact, no doubt, it's the economy. Yeah. But do you really understand what it all means? I don't think we have any way to contextualize where the economy is or where we're headed because we've never seen anything like this. Right. So I thought it would be good for us to, to call up a, an old friend of ours from college, Dave Waddell. I, because you're right. I mean, this is uncharted territory. Uh, the very first quarantine episode that we did, I mentioned something about I have enough knowledge about viruses to be dangerous. Mm. Uh, and that would be the same if I chimed in here on the economy. And, and whatever I could possibly say uh, will be eclipsed and rectified uh, well by Dave, who has a honestly has a gift yeah. for le- a level-headed, informative way of m- making things seem very simple. Yeah. So this is, I think, this is one of the most useful podcasts we've done, actually. Yeah. Well, you're all welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dave. Dave went to Swanee with Brandon and I. Uh, he's a a great guy, one of the funniest people we know, good storyteller. He's also the CEO and chief investment strategist for Waddell and Associates. They act as chief strategy officers for nearly 1,000 client families across the United States. They're based in Memphis, and uh, we're going to give them a call. Well, good to talk to you, Dave. Um, you know, it, it of all the people that I thought would be fun to talk to about the current moment, uh, it was you, because you have, uh, I guess, this tendency to find yourself uh, in media situations during times of crisis. Your brand is crisis. <laughs> uh, there have been some funny ones because, of course, markets move quickly and they move quick, more quickly now than ever before. In fact, the movements we've seen in the market are right now, historic, and that'll only accelerate as robots trade stuff instead of people. Um, but in two instances, I recall, one, it was during the great financial crisis, and it was 2008, and I was standing on Main Street in Memphis, Tennessee, and for some reason, the BBC was in town, and they set up a camera, and they came out of their trailers, and they put it in front of me and said, we want to talk to you about what you know the government's doing to, to address this crisis. And I said, okay, let's do that, because I knew that that day, Congress was getting ready to pass whatever it was, an $800 billion stimulus package. Markets were going to rally. And I was just generally kind of in a good mood, you know? So I roll up to the camera and 
they said, you know, Mr. Waddell, thanks for being with us. You know, obviously, these are strange days in the United States, and we understand uh, that Congress has a big bill before it. What are your thoughts on that? I was like, I think it's awesome, right? I mean, they're going to gap fill this economy. Things are going to get better. And they said, well, we just got word that they didn't pass it. I go, it failed? <laughs> I totally went into sort of panic mode on the telephone uh, or in front of the camera. And I said, I had to write myself and think, all right, all right, hold on. I'm thinking out loud here. There's no way that they don't come back and readdress this. This is political suicide for whichever party has derailed. So I'm having this internal conversation in front of the camera with this new bit of information that I completely and totally didn't expect. Um, so that was one. Two was um, I was doing some work, I think, by phone during a flash crash somewhere post great financial crisis, like 2010. And there was some, you know, echo butterfly wing thing coming out of China and the markets were freaking out a little bit, not much, just a little. Um, and I was set up by phone to do this NBC, NBC, or MSNBC uh, spot and my cable was out. So I couldn't see what was going on in the market and it was opening bell and the futures were down a couple hundred points, no big deal. And so I get on and I said, what do you think about this? And I said, yeah, it's computer tr trading. They're overreacting. You know, this is really no big deal. And they said, do you know the market's down a thousand? I was like, the market's down a thousand? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but I gathered myself and I was like, you know, that's, that's a misprint um, by the end of the day. You know, so I had to just throw something at the wall and hope it worked out. Like I imagine, you know, we may not be higher on the day, but we'll close closer to break even. Uh, it actually ended up working out that way. So I got kind of lucky. Um, but yes, every once in a while I get blindsided um, while on one of these programs. So. <laughs> Fortunately, that hadn't happened in this go-round. Uh, it's been uh, been ridiculous, but you know, nothing surprising me while I'm in blackout mode doing a media appearance. <laughs> That's great. Um, so, what? I don't know, man. What? What have you? What have you been telling people? Uh, what? What are we looking at here? Um, well, I think you know there are going to be lots of books written on this, but what I've thought about most recently is the difference between textbook economics and behavioral economics. Okay. I'll try and make this simple. The U S economy is $18 trillion. Okay. So if we go offline and you divide that out, really it's about a trillion and a half a month. So if we go offline for two months, you know, completely, we all just go isolate and sit in our kitchens and eat edibles or whatever, you know, people are doing um, that takes, $3 trillion offline, right, for two months. Um, three months would be four and a half trillion, et cetera. Well, if you add up the government stimulus programs to date, they're about that big, okay? Mm -hmm. So at a high level, the macroeconomics says, the textbooks will say, no problem, right? The government has stepped in and it's filled the economic divot and you just play through, play on, play on, Mr. Burns, play on. That's the textbook economics. The behavioral economics is, it's a total circus, right? <laughs> so below the waterline, business owners are like, what do I do, what do I do? The hair's on fire. They're like, should I fire all my employees? Should I keep all my employees? Which government program should I go to? You know, I'll be, I'll be the guinea pig in this one. I'll be the behavioral finance problem with the textbooks. So in March of 2009, I was sitting in my office watching CNBC watching the world burn down, thinking this is the death of me, this is the end, it is over. And I got a telephone call um, from a guy you know, uh, Johnny Daly, not the golfer. 
And he goes, you're sitting in your office right now. You're watching CNBC. Um, I need you to get on an airplane and come to the Bahamas immediately. It's doing you no good to sit there. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> you know, that sounds awesome. And so I get on the plane, I go to the Bahamas, um, I go to Harbor Island, which isn't easy to get to. And I'm watching CNBC on the couch. There literally is a supermodel shoot happening on the beach off the coast of the, or, or the wall of the property. I, I'm not interested in that at all. I'm interested in watching my world burn on CNBC. <laughs> and he walks in and he goes, give me the remote control and go sit in that chair right by the pool. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> you know? So I did, I gave him the remote. I sat in the chair. That was the bottom. That was March 9th, the bottom. And I was doing the math in my head and I was like, I think I'm out of business. I think, you know, these clients aren't going to be able to send their kids to college. I mean, I was miserable. All right. So go to the coronavirus and go to the market. I mean, on March 23rd this year, small caps were down like 45%. Large caps were down 40 I mean, it was a bloodbath. I've never been so happy and excited in my life, right? I mean, this is a great buying opportunity. So in 2008, I was suicidal. In 2020, I'm elated, but yet I'm the same guy. And this is the flaw. <laughs> in economics, right? The textbooks <laughs> tell you I'm a rational actor and I'm the same guy, two totally, you know, an analogous crises with completely, totally different responses. So I had two conversations yesterday to demonstrate the irrationality of the economic man that the textbooks tell you is impossible. One with a guy in business, got 10 employees, you know, total payroll, call it a hundred grand is what he needs, right? Just to get through the next month or so. He's not going to take that government money. You know why? Because he don't trust that government. Not going to take it. It's free money. Not going to take it. Textbooks don't contemplate that. On the other side, I talked to a banker who said, uh, I said, are you guys participating in this, you know, payroll protection loan program? And he said, yeah, we don't, we don't understand it. I'm like, well, what do you mean you don't understand it? The money's there. It's free money. He's like, yeah, I, I just don't know. We can't figure it out. I'm not sure if we're going to make any money on it. The textbooks, tell, don't, they don't contemplate that, right? So the resources are all there, and that's what the textbooks say, but it's up to the resourcefulness of the economic players to claim those resources. And so what should be somewhat simple has become ridiculous, complex. And, and so there's a lot of churn below the waterline, but when you look at the macro stuff that the textbooks talk about, all is well because we had somebody step up to fill that gap in the economy. Um, but clearly not, not all this one. So not to treat you like a, a soothsayer, but what's going to happen? That, you know, I, I've thought a lot about that because it's, it's the disaster preparation mode is over. Okay. We're here. Now it's the recovery preparation stage, right? And, and what is that going to look like? Um, if 2008 was a financial crisis, 2020 is a small business crisis, not just here, but everywhere. If you go back and look at 2008, I think the number of banks going into the financial crisis was something like 7,000. These numbers may be wrong, but they, they make a good point. Um, and I know they're right enough to use. <laughs> so the banks were like 7,000. At the end of the financial crisis, or actually today, they're like 4,700. So market share went up to the big banks, to the giant banks. So the way that we dealt with too big to fail 
was we got rid of all the small banks and we consolidated everything with the big banks. So that's the way we did. So the strong survive in crises like this. If you're Apple right now and you got $200 billion on the balance sheet, you don't have any problems, right? I mean, maybe fewer iPhone sales, but you can use that $200 billion to buy up tons of businesses in distress. Uh, so I think there's going to be marketplace consolidation to the large business. So what I work about, and this is what keeps me up in the middle of the night, so I'm going to be very vulnerable with you right here, Hanson. Um, the ultimate expression of communism is that everybody has the same thing. The ultimate expression of capitalism is one guy has everything, right? So with all the small businesses, you know, having to figure out if they can with their irrational behaviors, how to get through this, the large businesses just gobble them up. They gobble up market share. They gobble up the weak. Uh, it's a forest fire and the big trees will survive. Um, so I worry about the market share that ends up going to big business versus small business. So I worry about that because productivity and ingenuity comes from the stuff we're doing right now, right? It comes at ground level. I worry about income inequality being exacerbated by this even more. Um, obviously, those with the least are being impacted disproportionately. They don't have banking relationships, so they can't get to the PPP loan. We're going to have to deal with that. The other thing we're going to have to deal with is that the government has stepped in in a meaningful way um, to an astounding degree, and therefore, they kind of own most of the economy. Well, most is too strong, but a whole lot more than they did in the past. So ironically, under the Trump administration, we're socializing more of the economy than we ever had in the past uh, in response to this crisis. So Trump may have the Oval Office and Bernie may have dropped out, but Bernie's philosophies are winning the day um, because the government is just printing money and buying everything they possibly can to fill the divot. So I think large businesses benefit disproportionately. And I think the Gini coefficient, which is a serious problem, just blows out even more where the haves end up taking more and the have-nots end up taking less. The Gini coefficient, what's that? So that's the measure between um, the rich and the poor in any individual country. And again, the soft underbelly of economics and strict capitalists understand this, they don't talk about it, is if you go into those that are the most pure in terms of regulation not being a factor, you know, economic actors being unconstrained, uh, you end up with a higher Gini coefficient, right? So if you look at Scandinavia, lower Gini coefficient. If you look at the U.S., higher Gini coefficient. If you look at Hong Kong, you know, which is really economic utopia, freedom, then you get a higher Gini coefficient there. So what leads to political disruption and distress and the rise of um, populism is basically traceable back to the Gini coefficient, which is, again, that disparity between rich and poor. Do you have any faith the government is taking any steps to prevent the Gini coefficient from becoming starker? Are they making any efforts to tip the scales in favor of small businesses so they don't get gobbled up? Um, the government, going back to economics, economics is all about one word, and that's incentive. Governments only have one incentive in a democracy, and that's to get reelected. So I do think the way they're spending the money, and let me put this money into perspective, okay? Companies over a two and a half small businesses, I'm talking about companies less than 500 employees, spend about $600 billion on payroll over a two and a half month period. You just have to trust my math there. I did it this morning. The first government PPP, payroll 
protection program was 350 billion. Now they're talking about 250 billion on top of that. There are 5.8 million businesses in that demographic in the United States of America. The government is going to pick up 100% of payroll expense for free for the business owner for two and a half months. That buys you a lot of love. Mm. So do I think that they're addressing the Gini coefficient? No, I bet they're not even talking about it. Do I think that they are considering how to get the most political points? I think they are. And the way you get the most political points is by getting that money out to the most people possible. The way to do that is through the small business. But just so you know, large businesses, they put $500 billion into a program that the Fed can lever up 10 to 1. So they've allocated $5 trillion, more or less, to large businesses and municipalities. And they've allocated $350 billion to small businesses. So everybody's getting paid. Um, does that buy the votes in the end? We won't know until November. Oh, yeah, we're still having an election this year, too, by the way. <laughs> wow. You know, it's always kind of amazed me how economics, um, I don't know, it's, a, it's an odd predictor of us as a species. Right? Yeah. Well, we're hardwired for prosperity, right? We want more than we had. We're creatures that are psychological as well as analytical. Um, so it ends up being a very drunken, clumsy walk towards prosperity, but we ultimately get there. And the U.S. has by far been the most successful economic experiment in world history. And now what's happening is that people are just adopting versions of what we've done here. So the Asian model, the Chinese model, people talk about Chinese being communist, Chinese, not communist, right? So they're running a capitalist society. They're just doing it like a corporation with Xi being the CEO rather than as a democracy like we have in the US. So people are adapting capitalism to different frameworks, but they're all basically copying our playbook. They're just personalizing. So that's really good. So overall the economy can grow in my judgment, 500% larger globally than it is today if people just wholesale adopt the capitalistic principles, uh, which is happening. And by the way, democracy follows. So as the world capitalizes, it will also democratize. Yeah, that's uh, the last time the three of us were together, I seem to remember having a really interesting conversation. You'd recently returned from spending a year in China to observe the markets there. And as I recall, you seem to come back with more insight on the United States. Then talk a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it was really fascinating. First of all, uh, I lived in Hong Kong, read the South China Morning Post every morning, which is a fantastic paper written for a pretty educated uh, readership. But people would test me, you know, going over there and saying, oh, you're going to go over there, you're going to turn into a communist, you're no longer going to be a Christian, you know, they are going to... Um, put trackers on all of your technology and equipment. And I mean, it was just all of these stories, right? You're going to get cooked by all their propaganda. And then I get over there and I start reading their version of events. And I start considering what life is really like in the U.S., right? So do we have propaganda? I think we do. Uh, you talk about media biases, et cetera. 
I mean, they're on display, whichever side you want to go to. I mean, is Fox News propaganda? It, it is. <laughs> is MSNBC propaganda? It is, right? So they have more targeted propaganda, for instance. There's plenty of propaganda in the United States of America. Additionally, we've got a heavy regulatory hand. So people are often say, you know, in China, the government can take your property. Well, back in 2010, when I came back, the regulators had gotten so aggressive in the financial services industry that there was a threat that if I put something on Facebook and a client liked it with the thumbs up, that that was a testimonial. And testimonials in our business are illegal and the government could shut you down, right? So it's like, well, my biggest fear in 2010 was not that the market would go down. It was that we'd screw up somehow in social media and the government would shut us down. Well, I mean, that sounds a little bit like some of the accusations we were making about China. So what I realized is there's a lot of similarities. Uh, and by the way, they're more capitalistic than we are. And their patent rates are higher than ours. And their corporate originations are higher. Their entrepreneurship is higher. They operate more entrepreneurially at, at, at ground level, some out of necessity and some out of choice than we do. So yeah, I learned a lot about the United States of America while I was over there. Also, they are uh, leading the world in robotics. And I thought that's kind of cool. And so I wanted to invest some money in some smaller companies or some funds that were looking at AI and robotics. Well, we passed a law in the United States of America that any entity that receives U.S. capital from a U.S. investor has to report that correctly to the IRS in the United States of America. And if they report it incorrectly, the American uh, government can basically claim whatever assets that entity has in the United States of America. So it used to be that as a U.S. citizen, everybody loved you when you walked in the room because you were rich and they knew you had capital, so they'd throw their ideas at you. Because of that regulation, they didn't want American capital. Too many strings attached. So I learned a lot about America while I was, I, I still love America. Still, still bleeding red, white, and blue over here, Hanson. Um, but a lot of the, hey, our neighbors are bad because of these reasons, some of that's in our house as well. I've. I think you also said you you can see the power of the centralized government uh, in China. While it took us ten years, eleven years to build the Freedom Tower, China can you know an official can point to a corner and say building there, and it's up in three months or one month. What is yeah, the inter- or, or you or you contain the coronavirus in three months? What is yeah? What is the interplay? And that's another good example. How did you see that interplay of Chinese totalitarianism and the economy? How do, how do those two benefit each other? In, in some ways, I admire it, right? The flaw in the, if you like a corporation, which I love a corporation, right? So at Waddell & Associates, I am CEO, okay? Am I a dictator? I don't think they'd say I'm a dictator. I mean, I like to get everybody's opinions. I source everybody's opinions. But at the end of the day, it's my decision right? Um, That's the way China operates. They'll take all this input, but then there'll be one individual that can be charged with making the decision. In the U.S. government, it's hundreds of individuals among the House, among the Senate, etc. Obviously, the White House, the Supreme Court. And there are reasons why we set it up that way. Because if you have an individual who makes bad decisions, like Mao, well, then you murder 100 million people. 
right? So the flaw in that system is that you get a bad CEO. But if you've got a good CEO like Deng Xiaoping was, and like Xi Jinping has been up to this, I mean, obviously there are flaws in that model too, but from a prosperity perspective, the economy has been a miracle. So I can tell you a quick story. When I flew out of Hong Kong, flying back to the United States of America after my 18 months there, I looked down. There's a bridge. It'll be the longest bridge over water on the planet that's being built from um, Hong Kong to Macau, I guess, and then on to China. The Chinese control half of that project. Hong Kong controls the other half of the project, right? If you fly out of Hong Kong, what you'll recognize is the Chinese have finished their half. It's done. On the Hong Kong side, the bridge isn't built. You know why? Because they discovered some pink dolphins live there um, and they don't want to disturb the pink dolphins, right? Because democracy had a hand in it. Somebody was like, wait a second, let's not do this. We got pink dolphins. This is awesome. So let's not have a bridge. And so they had to have debate and discussion because Hong Kong is pretty democratic. It's the English system. So stark contrast, half the bridge built because the Chinese just do and half the bridge not built because we pontificate and debate as democracy. So they're much more efficient. So where they win on the playing field is speed. Sometimes they act badly. um, So that system has its weaknesses, but in certain instances, ours does as well, right? And they can be much more laser focused. In fact, in the great financial crisis, we messed around with interest rates. Um, They just would have said, you can't buy another house in 2006, (laughs) right? So they have rifles, we shoot with shotguns um, and we create all of these unintended consequences. So if you look at the stock market in China, um, year to date, it's lower, but marginally because they dealt with their problem very quickly and now they've reopened their economy. So that's just evidence. And there is some talk, which I think is curious, about this accelerates China past us because it'll take us a while to clean up this mess and we're messing around and they're back online. I don't know if you remember, but when we were at Swanee, uh, learning about the concept of Occam's razor, you know, this this age old philosophy that the, the simplest solution is usually the best. And then going straight to computer class, which completely defies all of that it's somewhere around the industrial revolution and more so with the computer revolution that we've, we've traded Occam's razor for speed. Do you think that democracy is going to turn out to be too slow a form of government in the long run? There's been a rotation and it's been accelerated in the Trump white house back to executive power. I mean, he acted unilaterally on those tariffs. He just said, look, these are national threats and I'm going to do what I'm going to do. The Supreme Court, you know, I don't know really what they do anymore. Um, Every once in a while, they'll issue a ruling, but it always seems to be a non-ruling. So I think there's actually been a rotation back to power in the executive office. I think Obama did it. I think Bush did it. Every time there's a crisis, you get more centralization of power. And then the other side or, or the other agencies have to claw it back. So I actually think the executive in the United States is strengthening. Uh, And I think if you look at what the Fed has done as a central bank, today they just announced they're going to buy high yield bonds. They're going to buy municipal debt. They're, They're in areas of the market they've never been in before. 
they're not too far away from saying they'd buy stocks, which would equitize the economy. So there's an enormous amount of power, a land grab of power that went to the Fed. There's a land grab of power in this you know, period of, of government interference that went to the Treasury. And the Treasury Secretary is appointed by the executive and, by the way, appoints the head of the Fed. So the Fed is not politicized and they operate separate from the government, but they're chosen by the president. So I think in the United States of America, we've got this broad democracy and that's great. It keeps us from you know, having leaders like Mao who killed lots of people. But I think we're actually becoming a, 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 a island with a strong man. I think the White House and the executive are gaining lots of power. I'm not sure everybody sees it, Yeah. You said something uh, earlier that I think might have surprised a lot of people when you said uh, as more and more stocks are traded by robots. Yeah. Could you explain that? Yeah. So most of the daily trading volume on the New York Stock Exchange is algorithmic. The best story I can tell you as evidence of that, the night of Trump's election, right, there is all this news propaganda, if you will around if Trump's elected, the stock market's going to crash. So people went in and they programmed their algorithms and they said, if it looks like Trump's getting elected, sell. When Broward County in Florida went Trump, the stock market collapsed after hours, right? This was middle of the night futures trading. And so the the algorithms did what they were told because ultimately they're written by men and they get put into machines and those machines do what they're supposed to do, the computers you reference. So they sold heavily. Then the people woke up the next morning and said, wait a second, are we sure that less regulation, lower taxes, they started going through the playbook. Are we sure that's bad for the market? And the market went up, right? So that's the starkest contrast I've ever seen of the men versus the machines. The machines had all been told what to do and they executed brilliantly. And then the men applied some logic, some reasoning, some creativity, and the market went up, you know, almost uninterrupted until coronavirus. So there are two large hedge funds, Citadel was one of them and maybe Renaissance the other, that on any daily uh, volume tape control like 60 or 70% of the daily trading activity. It's astounding. Mm. In the short term, the accusation, is the markets are casinos, and I totally agree. <laughs> I do. I totally agree. So I think the machines get to have the daily activity. I think it's up to the men to figure out how to exploit those mistakes. Here's an example. So on March 23rd, the fear index, which is a, a wonky tabulation of options volatility in the market, was higher than it was in the great financial crisis, okay? So the markets were panicking on March 23rd more than they had in March 9th of 2009. Total panic. For the investors, right, for the, for the men and women who make rational decisions with longer timeframes, that was an opportunity to buy. Um, two days prior to that, we removed hedges in our portfolio to take advantage of the hyperactivity of the algorithms. So it becomes an arbitrage game between the rational long-term investor and the 
electronic short-term investor. Because every once in a while, like they did the night Trump was elected, they go way out over their skis. And that kind of irrational moment within the market is a huge opportunity. And that's what we just saw, I think, um, when the VIX spiked on, on March 20th. So the markets have really kind of, in my judgment, become man versus machine. Since you're allowing me to vamp on this, I'll go one more step deeper. Uh, after Sawani, which taught me communism, I mean economics, uh, <laughs> I went off to Schwab and I learned how to trade securities. And then I went to business school and I learned how to buy securities, individual stocks, right? And so I could look at a balance sheet and a cash flow and an income statement. I could tell you whether the market was pricing a stock correctly or incorrectly. If it was incorrect and it was undervaluing the company, then we want to buy it and that stock would true up, right? So I figure out that Mount Enterprises is undervalued and I buy it. And then Brandon does the work and figures out that Mount Enterprise is undervalued. He buys it. And that's what makes stocks go up in value, right? That is traditional stock picking, Warren Buffett, fundamental analysis kind of work. That business is gone. It's gone. All the money now is flowing into electronic trading strategies, quantitative trading strategies, or index fund strategies. If that's the case, that all that matters is money flows, it doesn't matter whether Mount Enterprise is undervalued or not. What matters is if Mount Enterprises is in an index that's attracting money. So it all becomes about money flow. So if you do look around Wall Street, the amount of analysts has gone to almost nothing. Trading groups within the large investment banks has gone to almost nothing. So the machines really are somewhat taken over the marketplace. The fundamental work that we were all trained to do is just not being done or it's not being rewarded to the degree it was in the past. I, I'm trying to write a book on this right now, so I could spend another couple hours sort of going through this, but there is a massive sea change in the way the markets operate, enabled um, or disturbed by technology. Does that have anything to do with the tremendous uh, speed that all of these trades are happening at, this buying and selling that can only be done by a computer? Because no, no one can buy and sell that fast. And I read an article a long time ago about these issues of split second timing became such an issue that they had to regulate the length of the cables uh, at the at the stock exchange because if somebody's cable was a little shorter, they had the microsecond advantage over the server right next to them. Is that right, or am I? No, no, no. The first day I moved to Hong Kong, I went. Uh, we lived in Stanley on the backside of Hong Kong. It looks like Hawaii. It's just lovely. And I went to uh, Smuggler's Inn, which is this little pirate bar. And I sat down to have a beer and contemplate what my life was going to be like in Hong Kong. And this guy comes up to me, he goes, hey, man, do you want to buy a BMW? I was like, well, I don't know. I just got here. Do I need a BMW? <laughs> and he said, well, some people have cars, some people don't. I'm selling mine at a steep discount. I got to get rid of it in the next 24 hours. So, you know, make me an offer. And I said, man, I'm not ready for all this. But I said, where are you going? He said, well, I'm leaving Hong Kong and I'm moving to Shenzhen. And I said, why are you doing that? He said, because um, I'm a high frequency trader and Hong Kong has passed a regulation that you can't be within, I mean, I don't remember what the number was, like 500 yards of the stock exchange or something with your high frequency equipment. And Shenzhen has no rules against that. 
And so I can actually get closer to the exchange and make more money with my high frequency strategy by relocating to Shenzhen. Now, I'm a fundamental guy. Had I already consumed my bourbon, I might have punched him in the face. Um, <laughs> it is market manipulation, and you can see it every once in a while when you do a trade. I got screwed on one uh, a week ago, low volume, market makers screwed me. Uh, so you see it, but yes, you're absolutely right. The length of your cable matters. Yeah, I've heard that the, the the rents that are being charged for what was office space and is now server space close to the New York Stock Exchange has gone through the roof because people are paying for that one thousandth of a second differential. Yeah, and if you have lots of computers, you can make lots of money. There are I should give you the names of these stocks and I don't have them on the tip of my tongue, but there are two publicly traded stocks that their business model is high frequency trading and they're both higher on the year. Even though the stock market at its low is down 40%, right? Because they don't care if it goes up or it goes down. They just want to shave something every time somebody makes a trade and there's money to be made there, but it's, it's, it's a parasite. What, what you said kind of shocked me earlier that analysis is largely gone. That, so what that is, allowing is a kind of hollowing out of actual fundamental value. Correct. Correct. The fundamental work is going away. It's not totally gone. I mean, but it's losing market share. And so lots of people have pontificated upon where that tipping point is, where you get so far away from the fundamental work that you just create, you know, uncontrollable bubbles and all sorts of mess. What I found most amazing, Jack Bogle started Vanguard. Vanguard runs the largest index funds in the world. They absorb an enormous amount of capital every day. So that's how most people now access the stock market is they buy one of the Vanguard funds. So Jack, right before he died, wrote a big opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal advocating that the government break up Vanguard, the company he founded, which was fascinating. So you had the wow. father of the movement say, my baby's out of control. Hmm. So I don't know, you know, unfortunately, Jack's not around, so we can't have that conversation with him. And he was always sort of a maverick, which is why ultimately Vanguard moved into an office off campus. <laughs> but it was his baby. And he was asking the government to cut it pieces because he thought it had too much market power. And he's right. Where that story goes, I don't really know. But that disruption will create opportunity. I don't think it's imminent, but it's it's definitely something to contemplate. Uh, going back to something right, you said at the very beginning, uh, earlier you said that uh, your job as a consultant has become richer. How is that? Does it feel like you've become more human? Like you can bring more of your wisdom and intelligence to the table rather than just, you know, your training? Yeah, it becomes less um, tactical and more strategic. It, this business has always been somewhat transactional. It became more relational over time. Now it's almost becoming paternal. So we, we run money for 800 families, more or less. I mean, we care deeply about these people. And at the end of the day, they care deeply about us. And if you're in a relationship that is that close and that intimate, the conversations are not just going to sit on what are your fees and what are the performance. We rarely have those conversations anymore. It's much more around what are you really trying to do? You know, what do I really want? And 
there's a spreadsheet that can be built, but I can also, through the power of networks and communication, link you with the right people, you know, the right resources. We don't have to know it all. We just have to know who does. So the reach of the business um, extends into multiple disciplines, whatever it takes to improve the quality of life of our client. That's a pretty distant departure from just being finance. Good. Hey, thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a little different smoke than your typical uh, podcast. So, you know, I wouldn't expect high, uh, you know, listener. Uh, I'm sorry. I've ruined your program. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It was a a hell of a run. And and so you decided to go finance, you know, you really had something. It's okay. We're not going to air this one. It's fine. (laughs) And seriously, you have a real knack and talent for taking stuff that's very abstract and, uh, uh, far out for people making it real, real understandable. So that's why you get ambushed on television. So um, in my in my firm, we've decided we're all going to have superhero names, and I've been named the Fog Cutter. The Fog Cutter? The Fog Cutter. That's my superhero name. That's great. I like it. That's a good one. You just need a costume. Brandon, what's your superhero name? I don't know. Uh, Flannel Man. Flannel Man. That's just what I'm wearing. That's lame. <laughs> Uh, what is yours? Actor man? You want to go with the uh, obvious? Yeah, I'm... Pre- pretender man? <laughs> I like it. It's, sure. black, it's black bold, guys. <laughs> no, it's not. He's right. talking. Dave, well, th- thanks again, and, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Uh, I'm sure that... Uh, you're, so you're working from home, I take it. Yeah, working from home. I've got the kids upstairs. Um, markets are rallying. I'll put some on the grill. All right, man. Take care. Tell the kids I said hi. I'll do it. All right. Bye-bye. The Well is produced, recorded, and edited by Brandon Edgens and me, Anson Mount. Theme music by Brandon based on a composition by Jonathan Myberg. Special thanks to my friend David Waddell at Waddell & Associates for taking the time to sit down with us. That music you're hearing right now? That's the fog cutter himself, playing guitar from his home in Memphis, Tennessee. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>